Welcome to the Retail Exchange Podcast. You're listening to the Retail Exchange Podcast with me, Carl McKeever. On this latest episode of the interview series, I'm joined by CoreSight Research Founder and CEO, Deborah Weinzig, a research and advisory firm specialising in disruptive technologies reshaping today's retail landscape. She joins me to discuss the key challenges facing retail leadership teams and what the key trends and priorities will be for retailers keen to adapt and prosper in the new retail landscape, and hopefully to provide some answers to the question about the next digital reality, the metaverse, as well as all things NFT. Here's the episode. Deborah, welcome. Thank you so much. Excited to be here. It's a very difficult time for companies and brands right now. There's a lot going on. Uh, New distractions seem to be coming along every day. But of course, with all of this landscape of change, what do you think are some of the big things that are really messing up that kind of more strategic approach to the way that businesses are trying to move forwards? Something we've seen over the past decade is this kind of expansion of the C-suite. And so we went from kind of this like key five, you know, people, right? CEO, CFO, chief marketing officer, chief merchandising officer, CIO, to like 15 people, right? And so we added the chief supply chain officer, the chief sustainability officer, the CDO, the CTO, and everything in between. And so I think that it started to really slow down decision making because these companies want, I mean, I've, I mean, these are like the advisory projects we work on is to get everyone on the same page. And that can take a week and it can take a year. And I think that because, you know, in a democracy, everybody wants to move forward with everyone in the room being comfortable, but sometimes that can take a lot of time and a lot of money. And so what what we've seen during the pandemic has been really interesting, which is a lot of this balance of power that had moved over the chief strategy officer has moved now to the CIO. And under the CIO, in many cases, you have a chief innovation officer. A significant change really happened all at once. I know now kind of like a dozen chief innovation officers that have started in the last, you know, really kind of six to eight months. And I think that we're going to see that cause some pretty significant change. I think it was in terms of like what they had messed up, right, was that they, they just got way too broad. I think they're now kind of rebalancing that that power in the organization. And I think with this kind of new role of this chief innovation officer, they're they're able to go out and look at all the bright, shiny objects, but basically independently make a decision on what they should do as opposed to right, kind of by democracy. So it's not necessarily a case that there's too many stakeholders, but perhaps too much of the big decisions were reliant on everybody essentially having their voice. I, that, that is like the perfect way to put it. And I think that the, you know, this idea that, and I get that you want everyone to be comfortable and to feel that they are part of the conversation, but sometimes, right, decisions just need to be made at a certain point in time. And I, and I often think about it from, there is the expense, right, that's, you know, that you're paying, whether it's to consultants or whatnot, but there's also, like, the opportunity cost. So those are the two things that I do worry about. For retailers, I mean, there are some clearly massive, immediate challenges. What do you think, though, right now is the most pressing of these? It's interesting because I do feel that there is a lot of conversation around sustainability, However, I, I still have as of yet to see anyone put in print, you know, step one, this is what you do, step two. And until we can all kind of get on the same page on what that looks like, I, I think it's incredibly stressful right now because, you know, there, there's even, you know, conversations, should we, does a consumer want to pay more? No. Okay. So do we have the permission to charge more? No. And, and there is like every step along the journey, I think there, there are many competing voices. And so... 
So everybody's trying to create their own roadmap rather than almost being some best practices around that. I think that that's exactly what we've seen. And as a result, I would say that where retailers are, for the most part, is further behind than what I would expect. And you know, if we take an example of a food retailer, right, if you look at the amount, so 40% of food that's grown end up, ends up in landfill, which is a shockingly high number. If we were able to cut that by half, we could end world hunger. And so if you think about, right, just, just that alone, right, and, and nobody ever thinks about food either. That's what, I mean, it's always a peril. And, and so I, I think that we just need to, to broaden our definition, I mean, Yes, that, that is sustainability in retail. Grocers are retailers. They are not fashion retailers, although in some cases maybe food can be fashion. But I do think that we need to kind of think about things more holistically, getting people in a room, making a decision, and moving ahead. And, and that may, right along the way, we may need to tweak things, but let's just make a decision. Mm. And I guess in the time that everybody's trying to figure out this roadmap and doing things differently, there isn't necessarily kind of almost concerted action towards those, those goals. I think that that is the biggest issue. And it's been interesting because some of the retailers that we've seen, they've done a great job around looking at, you know, some of the kind of really low hanging fruit that they can start to tell shareholders about because shareholders care. I mean, from what I hear from different investor relations or analyst relations, the number one question from investors now really is around sustainability because they have to, right, for their funds, right? They need that to be kind of a component. And so I think that this idea that they just get started somehow, some way, and not have it cost a lot of money and see what the reactions are because your shareholders care, your customers care, and certainly your employees care, but it doesn't have to cost a lot. It doesn't have to, I mean, when I was at Liam Fung, we literally pulled out the trash cans and the printers. So if you can't call, you know, create waste in some ways through printing and you have nowhere to throw it away, you're going to behave very differently. And actually, it saved us money. Yeah. Do you think then that there potentially is a, a case to be said for, for many retailers are potentially overcomplicating what needs to happen here? So adding more seats to the table in the C-suite is one aspect of complexity. But maybe if you look at what was the CSR agenda, which is now widened into the much bigger ESG agenda, you know, suddenly there's many more things to deal with to have to be, have a plan for, a strategy for, an audit trail for, and suddenly everything just became so much bigger. I, I think the complexity at retail now is like nothing I've ever seen. And so I, I think that you bring up a phenomenal example around like CSR basically kind of, you know, moving into this, this ESG agenda, which is, I mean, I've had companies ask us, is, is like mental health in there? I'm like, is it? I don't know. I mean, like this is really kind of, you know, however you want to kind of create the narrative. And I can certainly make it incredibly broad and, and, and inclusive. But, you know, right now I think that, you know, we've, we've got to take it kind of step by step. And I, I think that that's some of what we're missing. Mm. And this complexity that's been added and for many of these decisions, you know, that, there are so many different kind of also, whether it's competing voices, competing kind of other projects. And so everyone wants to make sure they're dotting every I and crossing every T, but that's just not reality. And in potentially in trying to do so many of the right things, you end up doing not very much of anything. And I think that that's, I mean, and I do think there's got to be decision fatigue, right? Because you had so many decisions that had to be made in such a short period of time, you know, kind of during the crisis that I think there's, there's some of that. And then as right, you know, in some cases, you know, folks are kind of migrating back to some kind of, 
you know, in office, not five days per se, but I do think that, you know, we're, we've gotten used to making decisions in a certain way. And now, right, we're, we're moving in a different direction, which is much more in person. And I do think in some cases that can be distracting. And that I think, and I, I actually think there is this big topic around distraction right now. And I feel that when I talk to executives that they're, you know, the best thing that they can do every Monday, write down the three things they're going to focus on that week. And if it doesn't have to do with that, I think you have to table it. So there's a lot of, um, I suppose, scope for optimism in all of this and in all of the different things people are trying to, to wrestle with. Where do you see that we can be optimistic for the future and especially where new investment in retail can help lead to better outcomes? I, I love that question. I'm, I'm an eternal optimist in terms of just, you know, by nature. And so, you know, at the beginning of this year, we thought about this whole idea around kind of, you know, you've got compute at the edge, why not retail at the edge? I think I must have been at CES and like was, you know, just kind of trying to put a, a, a framework around just my thought process. And so I was like, you know, we have new channels, right? We have the metaverse, we have live streaming, we have quick commerce. So quick commerce being like GoPuff and Gatier and Gorillas, right? The, you know, really kind of 30 minutes or less. Then on the, the new products to sell, we have NFTs, which is, you know, phenomenal. We have retail media, which, I mean, Amazon has really shown us the light. And then we have data. So there are companies like Banyan, which is literally taking retailers' data, anonymizing it, and then enabling them to sell it, whether it's to Wall Street or different financial services companies. But you're starting to create these, these kind of lakes where they can drive revenue from that weren't available even six or 12 months ago. And that, I think, is... Right, so I'm like, we've got three channels, we've got three products, and that is more, I mean, I've covered retail for, for more years than I care to admit. I haven't seen anything like that in my career. So is this about getting smart with the assets that you have? I think that that's exactly how I would put it. And, and I want to kind of double click on that because, you know, we, so I was in China when live streaming started, you know, we, you know, CoreSight is one of the, if not the kind of prominent um, expert on live streaming, at least here in the United States, North America, Europe. And we have seen, once again, this overcomplication, spending a lot of money, right? You don't need a, a KOL or an influencer. Take one of your sales associates, probably take two, just in case, you know, someone sneezes or, or needs assistance in one of the streams. You can do this from a store. You can do this from the car. It doesn't matter. And what we've seen is that this kind of trial around live streaming, and once again, keep the cost of your platform low. There are many platforms that are, you know, like literally $38 a month. And you can start to change the trajectory of your business. If you use live streaming, in my opinion, you are by definition sustainable because you see a 50% reduction in returns. And so if, if retailers were just to do that, right, they could, I would say, accomplish a lot in a short period of time, low budget, and drive additional revenues. And is that because the human factor there in those, those brief interactions that people will see on a device, on a small screen, you know, ultimately still it's the power of eye contact and the connection that you as people to people still make. That in many ways is, is worth m much more than all the sophistication that you can build into fancy websites. So not only is there right, the cost component, right, because right, the fancy websites are very expensive, but the power of the live stream is that you, the human on the other side, get to communicate with the live streamer. And so you can say, right, so we, we see it's really interesting in, in some specific kind of, you know, use cases like 
like a handbag where you can't see what the inside of the, the zippers looks like. And, you know, different people have different kind of requirements in terms of construction. Some people want maybe something to hold their keys and, you know, and, and so, and even like the color of the inside, right? You know, there's, just so you know, blue is like the best color to reflect the, the, the items that are in your bags, right? It's like a, a deep hole. The other thing that's really interesting is when it comes to, so dresses online have about a 90% return rate, which makes sense. You have a top and a bottom basically mm -hmm. in one garment. And with, you know, kind of apparel, footwear and accessories at about 40% of online sales returned, the opportunity in a live stream is you get to, in real time, ask the person on the other end, right, what is, is this like a light purple or is this a dark purple? Is this, you know, what's the inseam? What would I wear with that? And then the other thing that's super interesting we see in the United States, and I haven't completely figured this one out, is it the... The consumers talk to each other, right? They ask for each other's Instagram handles. And so then they're asking each other, right, for like another kind of point of decision making, right? What do you think about, you know, this? Should I buy it? Should I not? And so the, that has been really interesting mm. and a game changer and something we haven't seen in any other countries. I mean, essentially what you're talking about here is almost the virtual Tupperware party. It's so funny. So there's, I, I love the fact you bring that up. So there's one that you should watch. Uh, it's called Longer Burger. They're, they're shown weekly and they sell baskets, right? Like the Longer Burger brand baskets. And I will tell you, there is, there is some magic and it's like kind of a Tupperware party type of magic. And I mean, I'll be on there for like 45 minutes and I'm like, it feels like three minutes. And mind you now, I have like a ton of baskets in my apartment, which I, you know, live in a, but first of all, and they're gorgeous. And there's something very sincere, interesting, like they like draw you in. But there's probably the energy of all the other participants which actually helps to draw you in. You know, when you're a consumer and you're buying something, you're like, is this the lowest price? Are they gonna knock it down another 10% if I ask? And so what Longer Burger does, and they've held true to this, is that the price is only the price during the live stream. Okay. And the minute the stream is over, the, the price- It's a, it's a one time only. It's a one-time only. And that, there is some magic to that. I mean, there's, you know, everyone's trying like gamification and lucky draws. I mean, hey, the, the, there is scarcity because the price is only the price during the, you know, 30, 60, 90 minutes of the live stream. And that we find is drawing, you know, pretty significant purchase behavior. But, but really what you're saying here, even though that the platform is digital, it's still the power of people which are driving the sale. It, that, that's absolutely it. So I think that the idea is that we're taking out a lot of the friction and, you know, that you, you might have online where you need a question that, you know, you have a question that needs to be answered. Uh, we're also removing in many cases some of the friction around payment and simplifying payment so that, you know, there's not like 17 clicks between, you know, kind of item and basket and, and checkout. And, and starting to remove those, right, is also helping to drive the live stream market. And... I feel like last year when we talked to people, it was just very overwhelming for them. And now we have the metaverse to be overwhelming. So it's like live streaming is like, oh yeah, that's like just old technology and, and whatnot. But you know, there are a lot of interesting platforms. They're very easy to, to implement. I mean, this is, you know, we're talking like 15 minutes and, and very inexpensive. And so that I think is also very appealing. And you can tell your shareholders you're doing something incredibly innovative. You mentioned there the M word, and I want to kind of dip our toe here into the world of, of, of sorcery. Um, fad or future? Oh, I think it's absolutely the future. The, you know, there, there's a dear friend of mine, Joel Montagna from Triver, and oh my gosh, it might've been like a decade ago. He came to me and he talked about this idea of like in-app game purchases. 
And I was like, well, that makes total sense. I was living in China. I'm like, that makes total sense to me, right? Because I'm like, you know, right, we're there anyways. Maybe we're like thinking about buying a hamburger. I don't know. But like, you know, you're in the game and you're like in the kind of, you know, I think there's, you could definitely overdo that. But I think as long as it appears natural, the idea that like I had like an original like dev kit for like Google Glass. So I was very much into all of that. And I'm like, you know, as somebody who, you know, could always use a, a map of some kind, even, and you're like, you know, there's this idea right now where I'm like car commerce, but this is different, right? This is like you're walking around the streets of Manhattan. It's like, I want a hamburger. Where do I go? Right? Oh, go up two streets, take a right, you know, we'll give you 15% off type of thing. And so I, I think that right now, going back to simplification, I, if retailers want to buy land in the metaverse, I think that that's, that's great. I think that what everyone should try is an NFT. And, you know, there are many ways to do this. So a non-fungible token. And what you can do is either create just a virtual version of a physical good, or it doesn't even have to be a physical good. Um, I would recommend a virtual version. I would recommend a physical version and then some kind of access token. And so that access token might get you access to, you know, purchase the next NFT early. It might get you into a concert. It might get you into the store on Black Friday early. You know, and, and, and I think you want to test and take it slow and easy. Do you think this could be the next almost layer of loyalty where brands who have asked people either to subscribe to services or perhaps they have their card in their wallet, you know, by issuing these kinds of, you know, you know, interesting gizmos is a way again to hook people in in a different new way. It's really interesting. Taco Bell and all their brilliance sold NFTs with like a year, you know, as many tacos as you could eat in a year, which I can only imagine how many tacos have been eaten by the, these people who, who bought these. Think about the fact that everyone they can get their hands on, right? They're telling that they like were one of 10 people to get a Taco Bell NFT for as many tacos as they could eat for a year. And Just on pure PR value alone, it's exactly. worth doing. Exactly. No, I mean, it's, it is really kind of brilliant. And I think that it applies to, to everything. And also, there's an opportunity, right? If, you, if you're able to create this, you know, kind of, you could in some ways almost have like this user group that you as a brand can go out to and say, hey, we're thinking about dropping this. Is this something you'd be interested in? You'd be like, no. On the other well, hand. Well, that's your R&I department. That's exactly right. And so ultimately, so what we're seeing on, right, as an analyst, right, looking at the ROI, NFTs are expensive to, to create, right? They're, they're, they, are, they just are. But what we're seeing is that by the time the kind of, you know, sale is over, that retailers have more than covered the cost and that they've got kind of a little bit left in the bank. And so it is completely, you know, it is for, for a very new technology, they're coming out quite strong as it relates to kind of a positive ROI. And they've learned a lot about themselves, their customers, their potential customers, and you know, kind of really what they can do if they put their, their, their heads together with everybody in a short period of time and, and what that looks like. And I'll tell you right now, we're starting to already get a lot of inbounds around holiday, which I can't even believe we're talking about holiday 22. But you know, everyone realizes, right, that these, you know, these companies that you want to work with, they're starting to kind of get um, a bit backed up already and so that they need to start making some decisions around this, this holiday season. The, the pandemic created different kinds of pressures and imbalances uh, across the board. Uh, if you were a retail worker, perhaps you were finding yourself spending more time at home. If you were a retail leader, you were having to think of incredibly agile and innovative ways to keep the business going. Um, but when all is said and done, for everybody, we've had more time to reflect. 
What do you think is the importance of stopping, slowing down, looking back, consideration and reflection as part of the mix about how people then move forwards? Yeah, it's interesting. I think that one of the worst things we ever did was an open office architecture because right in every open office I saw, people were on their headsets because they were trying to like drown out the noise from like their neighbors. So the whole idea was to ultimately create this kind of open ecosystem. And what it ended up doing is, right, when somebody's got a headset on, you're not going to go up to them. I mean, if you really need them, you might tap them on the shoulder. But I do feel in some ways that this is, you know, this is not completely a backlash against that, but I think that that went, that was an experiment that went incredibly wrong. And I think that as we've had more time to reflect, we realize, I don't even know if I'd call it multitasking, but we can single task, right, kind of, you know, consecutively and get more done as a result. Well, I think one of the things that people were really wrestling with was this whole concept of work-life balance and prioritization around family, home, and your professional life. Whereas this kind of blended working environment that we've now by force find ourselves in has actually for many people been quite a good thing. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, in my own personal life as well, I used to travel extensively and, you know, I missed out on some important moments and now, right, I'm, I'm there for them and I certainly prioritize it in a different way because I've gotten more used to doing that. The, and, and I don't, I think that I am kind of, you know, representative in terms of, of you know, certainly all the data um, is showing that people would care to work from home more. But if we think about the implications of that, right, you have more, so typically, you know, kind of food at home versus food away from home is about 50-50. And now, as we heard from Walter Robb, one of the kind of uh, co-founders of Whole Foods, that we have about 60% of people now eating food at home. That is a significant change in terms of some of the decisions that they're having to make around their health and also, right, the access that they have to kind of like food on hand. Secondly, if we think about that, right, where people shop, what they buy, right, like our whole infrastructure is, is ultimately changing. And hey, I, you know, I didn't even own a pair of yoga pants before the I don't even think I really know what they were before the pandemic started. And I was like, I've got to get some of those because that's going to be the way that like what we wear going forward. And, and I think that the opportunity for retailers to really think differently about how this, you know, we believe that 50% of footwear in 2023 will be casual. And if you think about that, you know, whether you're at the luxury end of the spectrum or your opening price point, making sure that, that you are there for that consumer is ultimately critical. Do you, do you think one of the things from a kind of almost a, a social perspective that might be different in the future is that the generation of retail business leaders that we're going to have you know, in the next few years might be actually a little more empathetic in terms of their approach. You know, we're potentially looking at a big mental health crisis, especially among younger consumers and younger workers. Certainly the opposite end of the age spectrum, we're seeing that there are fewer older workers in the system. So necessarily, uh, you know, corporate leaders are going to have to be much more open about how they help people to manage this whole thing of work-life balance, but also provide more opportunities and inclusivity and the whole diversity mix within the workplace. It, it, I mean, you hit on like 20 different topics, which I would love to talk about them all, but we'll try and like, you know, just pick a few. So I, I think that the, the mental health aspect is, is really, you know, it's at Coresight, we really do think about it and we, you know, we have kind of very regular check-ins with you know the team on a global basis, and 
you know, sometimes, right, right we've, we've hired a significant amount of staff whom we've never met in person, and you know, you're not always sure, is it just that we're not communicating clearly in terms of what we need, or, and we have had cases where, where people have some real challenges in their work environment, in, you know, other areas of their life, and, and we're, we're, we've been incredibly supportive, and in some cases, it's been great, right? The employee is incredibly, I would say there's a lot of gratitude in other cases, right? They, they really have some challenges. And so my whole thing is like, our door is always open. You can and take I think one of those big phrases, which kind of swept the world, you know, for a few months was, you know, we're all in this together. And I think, you know, with that, it doesn't matter whether you were the CEO or whether you were just a cashier. Actually, these big, this big stuff that was happening was actually happening to all of us. And that's where status suddenly was irrelevant because actually we were all susceptible to the same things. You know, you, you helped me recall a conversation I had very early on in the pandemic. Um, it was like, you know, let's call it end, end of March of 2020. And I was talking to Bob Swan, the CEO of Intel at the time. And he was like, you know, look, he's like, you're in my house. He was like, he's like, I'm in your house. You're in my house. And he's like, he's like, that just has like a humanity about it. And I was, it, it really kind of, I mean, I met people's kids, their wives, their pets. And I'm, I, I will say like, I myself learned to be, I mean, right, we were trained as analysts, right? You just want to tell people like everything you know, you want them to know, right? Like, you know, how smart you are because that's how they're going to like vote for you, right? From a Wall Street perspective. And I will tell you, I really took a step back and I'm like, I, wanna, I want there to be uncomfortable silence because I want people to talk and tell me how they are, tell me what's on their mind. And I will tell you, I literally would, people who like, you know, I, I, some of my friends, I'd have a red pen in my hand and I would just hold on to it. I'm like, I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to let it, because I'm not comfortable with silence as many of us aren't. But I will tell you, I had significantly better conversations. I learned a lot about our clients, our potential clients, and also our team. And ultimately, you know, from that perspective, I found myself just like how to be a better leader. When we think about the future, brands are always, you know, looking ahead and trying to predict where they are wanting to be and the steps that they need to take to get there. But of course, with so many distractions around and the big crises which, you know, unhelpfully keep popping up, and especially none other bigger than right now with the situation we have in Ukraine. Has trying to predict the future become utterly pointless? And is it better to just roll with the punches? I think it's critical to have a plan, right? Especially like a three-year plan so that we, we know our goals and then to break it down into, you know, an OKR process or whatnot, but really kind of quarter by quarter. So if things aren't going as planned, we understand why, and we can, you know, kind of reallocate resources. I do think it's like this whole idea of like flexibility in a framework because, you know, I, as somebody who started off her career as a strategist at Morgan Stanley and where it was an inch uh, deep and like a mile wide, right, you, you saw a lot of things on a global basis and, you know, everybody had to adapt. And I think retail has the, the benefit that they see the consumer much earlier than everybody else does. Sure. And so they can, you know, and I, and I also think if, you know, I, I do think there's something to be said. I think we saw that for holiday 21, just buy less. Mm. You know what? The consumer will, you know, you will sell things at higher margins. We will have less waste. And, you know, this whole idea around control what you can control, 
because in a world right where you know you're you're getting curveballs more frequently, I, I do think that it's a great question. I do think that there's something to be said about that. Misconceptions, I suppose. Look, there will be plenty of people around uh, the boardroom table that will be pretty dismissive or maybe even cynical about the effects that you know, insight and research can have in terms of determining strategy. What would be your throwback challenge to that? And how would you try and you know, um, convince the people who may throw doubt on that, that actually you know, engaging people like yourselves to actually help them answer and look ahead at some of those big questions? How would you, how would you get them all on board? It's a great question because we do that all the time. And so a lot of it is around, you know, surveying consumers and looking at kind of just, just their attitudes towards certain initiatives that these retailers are, are considering, right? Because, you know, you can't fund everything and, you know, you'll pick a few. And we have seen instances where, so right, I always start with the data and, right, you know, from a quantitative perspective. And then you start to layer on the qualitative and you know, there's always that gut check, right? You know, maybe we run the survey again or maybe we run it 10 more times. Like, let's look at, at the data. And, and how the trends are panning out. Exactly. So I have to give, so one of the, the most interesting examples is that the millennial male spends the most in live streaming, which is, I would have thought it was a Gen Z female. And we ran it again and again and again. And then we started to talk to people on the street, if you will. And what we found is that the millennial male was buying larger electronics through live streams, whereas the you know, kind of Gen Z female was buying a $20 tube of lipstick. And so it was not, she may be shopping So more. is it the evidence that ultimately is the, is the thing that um, convinces the people who may doubt the power of insight? I think it is the evidence. And it's also, you know, I mean, I'm always very open, right? We're, we're doing our absolute best. This is kind of what we see, and this is what we believe, and and also too, in some ways, we've been very fortunate. Of course, right, since I had seen kind of the future from my time spent in China, I'm like, this worked there. This absolutely worked in this environment, and kind of what that meant, and it gave everyone another level, I would say, of of confidence. And so I think you know we're we're seeing innovation now in all over the world in like pockets we wouldn't have expected. And I think that, in some ways, we at Corsite have more than just kind of China to look towards at this point. Still incredibly important, but with innovation now kind of everywhere, it's, I think, very important to hunt it down, to question everything, and to ultimately you know, make sure that you've got the quant, you've got the qual, and to have a very specific message. Because if you go in kind of, you know, with, first of all, with too many, I think it's always three, right? You go in with three ideas, and, and to be able to support that with, with data and insights, I think you can make a significant difference. And this isn't something that has to cost a lot of time or money. Uh, Deborah, thank you so much for being our guest. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, my guest has been Deborah Weinzig, the founder and CEO of Coresight Research. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you, I really enjoyed it. That's all we have time for on this episode of the Retail Exchange Podcast. From me, Carl McKeever, goodbye and thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Retail Exchange podcast. Subscribe online at theretailexchange.co.uk and join the debate on Twitter. Hashtag Retail Exchange. Thanks for listening.